I think every decision that you make is sort of about what helps you come to peace with what happened. Welcome to This Is Gonna Hurt, Widows Mentoring Widows. I'm Patty G. In February of 2015, I suddenly became a widow. I'm hoping this podcast helps other women navigate widowhood. In this episode, I will talk to my sister-in-law, Larissa. Several years ago, Larissa's husband, Jim, died suddenly of a heart attack. She was now a widow and single mother of 11-year-old twins. Jim and my husband, Paul, were brothers and had died in similar ways. Larissa was always only a text or phone call away. I found myself contacting her on days that were particularly difficult. She was always available to listen and offer much-needed advice. I talked to Larissa by phone this fall. We begin with Larissa talking about the death of her husband. I was in my early 40s when my husband passed away, and I had children who were 11 years old at the time. Beautiful twin girls. Right. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And I would like to, just as a little background... I was being interviewed myself for this podcast, and I told the story, Larissa, about calling you. Uh, You were someone that I didn't want to call a lot because I knew this would just bring up a lot of pain. But boy, when I did, you were always right there, and you were always encouraging me. And one time, uh, Paul died in February, and this must have been the spring because I remember I was walking up and down the driveway, and I think I was just a little like, "What? how long does this last? And you said, this is going to hurt. This is just going to hurt. And I found that really comforting. I don't really know why. I guess it was just so honest. So then when I was telling that story, Juliet, the producer said, that's the name of your podcast. So it's because of you, Larissa, that this is called This Is Going to Hurt. Oh, that's a great story. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, it's also true, but... Well, that's what I think. I think, you know, if this is, I see this as widows mentoring widows, that kind of honesty just, I think that just is healing compared to some of the pithy sayings that you hear. Exactly. Some of the, um, you know, the pithy sayings can be helpful. It can kind of put things sort of uh, into perspective in a way, but, um, but everybody's experience is different. And I mean, it's good to be honest with yourself and obviously it's going to hurt, but it's good to be honest with yourself as to how much it hurts and just let it hurt. Exactly. And that was, it was just really helpful because I think you spend a lot of time trying to fight it and then just saying, this is just going to hurt. You just sort of lean into it and it doesn't, it seems to um, let the pain go a little faster then instead of fighting it all the time. Right. You have to kind of let, the pain happen organically. I mean, you can't really stop it um, and you can't control it. The pain comes when it comes. I mean, something can trigger it or it can just be a buildup of little things that have gone wrong during the day and then all of a sudden it just manifests itself. But you can't really control it. So it comes when it comes and to acknowledge it and to say, okay, it's going to come when it comes and I'm just going to have to deal with it at that moment, I think is you know, a healthy perspective to have. I'm kind of jumping ahead here. I really wanted to talk to you about what it was like 
to be a single mom to two young daughters. And that is not an experience I had, and I and anyone else I've uh, interviewed so far, that has not been their experience, but I know there's plenty of uh, women that deal with that. Yeah, it's a different experience when it's obviously when your children are grown and when your children are little because your children look to you to make it safe and to make everything um, okay for them. And so that's an added burden that you have is to make things, you know, as as easy as possible for them when they're dealing with their grief. So um, it's not just you dealing with your grief. It's you dealing with your grief and trying to help your children deal with their grief at the same time. Did you feel a lot like you had to be mom and dad together, or is that something you just sort of can't do? Well, in my situation, I was, uh, you know, fortunate in a way that um, my husband traveled a lot for his work. So there were many times where, you know, he'd be gone during the week, and it was just me and the girls. And so I had already, we kind of had that role where I was both sort of mom and dad during that time. I mean, where I was the only parent at home. So they were used to that sort of dynamic. And so that kind of helped transition over too, because I, because I, we were already comfortable with the role, like, you know, when Jim was in home, um, you know, they, I took care of everything that happened because he wasn't there. So yeah, it, in that kind of way, it was sort of an easier transition because they were used to looking at me and kind of used to having me be the only parent at home for a prolonged period of time. But still, to this day, my kids will t- say to me, you're trying too hard. Like I try to do too much for them. And in a way, it's sort of making up, at least the way I look at it, is making up for the fact that their dad's not here and trying to be both mom and dad and two parents rolled up into one in a way. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's it's a weird dynamic. And, yeah, I think a lot of times as a single parent, you try to take on the roles of both parents and and maybe it's too much. How did you feel when they say you're trying too hard? I know at one point I was talking to my daughter Katie, and I thought I was being a really good mom. I thought I was, you know, inviting her to share her grief and sharing just enough of mine. And she, next thing I heard is, you know, you need to talk to a therapist, mom. <laughs> and it just, <laughs> it totally floored me. I thought I was on it. So how did that feel to you when they say you're trying too hard? Um, well, I, you know, I kind of step back and I can kind of see their perspective because a lot of times I am trying too hard. I mean, I can see that myself, but it's kind of hard to stop. I think I'm kind of constantly trying to make up for the fact that, you know, in a way they were, you know, being so young and losing uh, a father with whom they had a really good relationship and they adored. I'm trying to make up for that, for them, trying to make their, um, like their childhood as pleasant as possible or as easy as possible or as at least less traumatic than what, you know, they had to experience at such an early age. So, and yes, I do see it because actually I saw it in my mom. Sometimes I thought she's trying too hard. <laughs> so I totally get it when they said to, to me, like, like I'm trying to 
be there too much for them, where as a parent, you do have to, as they get older, step back and kind of loosen the apron strings and give them some more uh, freedom. But I could see I was, I could see their perspective that I was trying too hard, and then I'd try to step back, and that would work for a while, and then I'd try too hard again. <laughs> so it's a hard habit to break. <laughs> and I think, too, I would have, that's enough hurt. So if I can prevent other hurt, I would like to do that. I guess it's not in our power to do that, but as a mom, you think it might be in your power. Right, and I think you said it much better than I said it. You said you want to prevent the hurt, and that's exactly it. I wasn't necessarily trying to make their life easier, like in the sense that, you know, I do everything for them. I don't expect them to do chores or anything like that. I just meant to lessen the pain, to make kind of, you know, make it okay. You know, it's you go through, when your children are growing up and, you know, when they're in school, middle, for me, the kids were in middle school when this happened. And so middle school and high school, there's all those activities and band concerts and plays and sporting events and all the things you go to. And, you know, everyone's there with their mom and dad, you know what I mean? And so it's always like a constant reminder that I'm the only one there for them. And so I try to make it, that's where you try to make the pain a little less. Like those are constant reminders when, you know, when all those activities happen, when both parents are there and then, for them, they don't have both parents. A big one for me was when Katie got married and I walked her down the aisle. And we unfortunately have another sister-in-law, another brother that passed away. And I remember watching her walk her daughters down the aisle. And for me, the, at rehearsal, I was on the side I was when our older daughter got married. And we both walked her down the aisle. And when I got to the end, the pastor said, you're on the wrong side. You're giving her away. You have to get on the other side. And that hurt. I hung in there pretty well, but when he made me move to Paul's side, that I wasn't expecting that. You know, we did the best with the moment. So I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of things like that that happened, and then it just doesn't end. Right. Yeah, they're constant reminders, I mean, to yourself and to your kids. And, and it's different things in different ways. It's a lifelong lesson that they're constantly learning how to cope with it. And you know, when it happens when you're so young, I mean, the rest of your life you're living with that fact and trying to deal with it. And, yeah, so that's why as a mom you try to step in and lessen the pain when you can because, I mean, it's it's difficult. And it's difficult for young minds when they're that little to process that and to make sense of it. And, you know, when you're older, when you're, you know, a spouse, you have a little bit more perspective of, of life and you've lived life and you can be a little bit more, although it's painful and everything, you can step back and like be a little bit more philosophical about it. But, you know, you can't as a child. You don't have that kind of life experience upon which you can draw. It just just seems scary and unfair and you don't know what to do with it. That's a very good point. You know, another thing I remember is a letter you sent out um, a year after Jim died, and I thought it was just, I've always admired so much of you, Larissa, and it was just um, beautifully written, but you said what you thought you would miss the most is that Jim was missing your family's potential. And I really like how you put that, because when I read that, I read, 
We're not going to fall, you know, we're not going to fall apart. We're going to keep going as difficult as it is and that he's going to miss your family's potential. Do you remember writing that and what that meant to you? Yeah, I do remember that because, yeah, because it's true. It is what hit me the most. He wasn't going to see what, you know, we created as a family, how it was going to um, manifest itself in the years to come. So I thought, you know, that was, you know, a huge loss for us and, and for him, too. I was sad that he wasn't able to see what became of us. And I can say all these years later, I mean, your daughters and yourself are just have been impressive and amazing. So you are living that potential, and I, I've always admired that. Well, we'll get a little more drier now for our for a topic, because I do remember, too, dealing with the finances right afterwards. Like, even though you were there doing a lot of that with Jim, isn't that just a mess to deal with right after they die? It is, and that's why even... I mean, I felt fortunate because, like as I said earlier, you know, Jim traveled a lot. So I was the one who took care of, you know, when the bills came in, I would write the checks and I would file away the paperwork. And you know what I mean? I was up to date on our finances and I knew what, you know, what whatever investments we had. We talked about that together. And when that paperwork came in, I filed it. I knew where everything was. I knew the, you know, the general numbers of what we had. And even so, it was a confusing and hectic time after Jim died concerning his finances. So when I always tell my my friends, just make sure that you know what's going on and that both of you are listed in, you know, all your investments so that nothing has to go through probate. But but just know where you stand and where things are because even with the best possible knowledge. It's an emotional time. It's confusing. You're kind of in a fog. So it's important to to know what's going on because it's hard enough as it is. That's why um, the adage of don't make any big decisions for the first year, I think is a really important one because you you have so many things you have to take care of that require your attention. And at the time, you're still, it's an emotional time and, you know, you're maybe not thinking clearly. Any decision you don't have to make, I don't make it until you, you know, had time to process everything. But don't add more decisions and work to yourself because you will be so busy taking care of the things you have to take care of. It doesn't, you know, you're not doing yourself any favors by taking on more. That's very good advice. I think you look back, well, you think you're doing kind of fine just because you got up that morning, I think. And then when you look back, you're like, oh, I was not that all this, as fine as I thought. So, Right. No. right. It depends on how the day progresses. <laughs> and, and I've shared the same advice with my friends that know what is going on. You know, go to those financial meetings you don't want to go to. You know, just listen and really know because you think, I mean, luckily I kind of did the same thing because we were, Paul and I were looking at how can we retire. So I, my antenna went up those last few years and I am very grateful because had that happened, you know, a few years prior, I would have really been in the fog and I wasn't in, in enough, I made enough mistakes and was in a big enough fog as it was when I knew who to call and what we had. So I think that's really good advice. Exactly. I mean, 
like you said, you're in the fog, you're emotional. It's a lot to take on. And the added pressure of not knowing what what's going on, I mean, that, I can't even imagine it. So, yeah, that's, I, that's really good advice to know what's going on. I mean, I think it's, it's crucial because you're going to be hit with everything at once, and it's too much. You just sparked a memory with me that I had a friend. She flew from Colorado to spend a couple of days with me, and I was grateful for that. And we just sat and wrote down everything on one of those yellow legal pads of all, you know, what am I going to do with Paul's clothing? What are we going to, you know, what are all these things that I wanted to do? And it filled up the whole one or two pages of that yellow legal page paper, and it took me uh, at least 14 months to get like 95% of that list done. So, yeah, it was her idea to write all that down. And then it helped because I wasn't holding that in my head, too. It was nice to have it on paper. Exactly. Yeah, my my brother did that for me. I mean, from the time that Jim died, he came right away and, you know, he kind of made a list of the things I need to take care of and that was very helpful because I was in no state to kind of come up with this list myself. But then as time went on, you know, I added to the list or took things off. But that is a really good point. Um, you know, if someone can sit down with you and make the list, that's good because there's so many things that need to be taken care of, and you're not going to think of them right away. And um, so that's a really good point, the, the list. Another thing I wanted to talk about is – since Paul's death, there's been people I've become very close with that I was very surprised. You know, there was people I was close to that, you know, their lives just kind of kept going. And I don't know if this didn't really click with them because their lives were busy. But there's been a couple of people that have really been extra supportive and I've gained some new friendships. I feel like the same thing happened with you. Yeah, it did. And it's kind of it's a funny phenomenon because, you know, some of the people you ex- you expected to um, be there for you, not that they weren't there for you, but, you know, they were there, but some people really stepped it up. And people you were not expecting, like there were some people that, there was this one guy that Jim played basketball with. They were on a, just a, at the health club, they had a little basketball league and they played in, in the mornings, you know, real early in the mornings before work. And, um, you know, we just kind of, he knew Jim from there, but he was also a dentist and he just sent me the loveliest note and said, you know, I would be honored if you, you know, if you and your daughters wanted to come and I'd be happy to give you free dental care for the rest of your lives. You know, he was just, I mean, he just made this grand gesture of someone we barely knew and, um, you know, and, you know, I wrote him a note and thanked him. And I said, uh, you know, I really appreciate it. But we have a dentist and stuff. But it was this big, like this huge gesture from a relative stranger. I mean, it was amazing. And so I was constantly surprised by people. And, and of course, your, your good friends, you know, always rally around you. And um, they were there. I have a lot of friends who made sure that I went out and got out of the house every once in a while because my nature is to sort of turn inward. And to me, it was easier to not so much hide, but just 
stay at home and it was like too much. I didn't want to deal with people and people were there with their spouses. And you know what I mean? It's kind of a constant reminder. And in the early days, I just didn't want to deal with it. It was too hard, but they kind of forced me to go out and it was good. I mean, it was, I'm glad I did. I needed that, but I didn't know I needed that. I needed that. So yeah, I was surprised by a lot of people that I didn't even know who showed these, you know, great acts of kindness to me. Uh, okay, for a new topic, and do you have an opinion or thoughts on wedding rings? Like whether to leave them on, take them off? Would you mind talking about your choice? Yeah, I wore my wedding ring for about, mm, I would say two, maybe two and a half years. I just wasn't ready. I think it's a really personal uh, decision. I think you have to be ready to, like psychologically ready to take it off. Because now you're saying to yourself, to your family, to the world, like, I'm no longer married. I remember when I had to go, um, you know, because I had small children, I, you know, I was able to receive Social Security benefits from, you know, what Jim had paid into Social Security. So I had to go to the, you can't just fill out the form online. You have to actually go to the Social Security office with your documents and you have to have a a death certificate and your marriage certificate. And they kind of fill it out for you, but you have to be there and provide the documents and provide answers for those questions. And I remember when she said to me, like she was just kind of talking to herself, but she was filling in one of the the, um, little spaces and it said, um, date marriage ended. And she put down the date that, you know, Jim died. And I just sort of gasped inwardly and said to myself, I'm no longer married. I mean, I knew I was a widow, but just that concrete, someone saying to me, you're no longer married, because I still felt very married. I mean, this was, you know, like a month after Jim had died, and I thought, to everyone else, I'm no longer married. And so it was a really weird realization that I'm no longer married. And I think that wedding ring is sort of a symbol of that, too, like, I'm married or I'm not married anymore. And I think it's whenever you feel comfortable saying to yourself and to everyone else, I'm no longer married, because that's what it signifies to, to the world. But as also as a mother, you know, with small, younger children, I was, always, I was always kind of conscientious of what I was portraying to them. And I wasn't sure... You know, if I took off my, even though I wasn't ready to take it off earlier, but that's also a concern. Like, if I did take it off earlier, how would that affect them? Even if they didn't say anything, would they notice and would that make them sad? So, I don't know. But it took me about two and a half years. And then, you know, then I just knew the time was right. I think you just have to know inside of yourself when the time is right for you to sort of make that statement. It's a quiet statement, but you make a statement. So you have to do what makes sense to you. This whole journey that you go through when someone passes away is just the whole road to acceptance, like making your peace with what happened. And I think what you're saying right now is something that I really valued from you and I think is a really important thing to say is that we kind of, you have to honor this process 
And I like how you're saying, so what works for you? You really do get this opportunity to just worry. I mean, you know, of course, your children and everything, but but you can't even be the greatest mother if you are not uh, taking care of yourself. So to honor this process, and it is a process, I that was helpful when you would say that to me in that first year, year and a half, and I think it's going to be really helpful for other people to hear. You do have to honor the process. And actually, in my situation, Jim passed away right before the end of the school year. About three weeks were left until the, the end of the school year. So my children are going to be home all summer. And so I kind of, I made the decision that I'm going to put my grieving on hold and I'm just going to focus on them this summer and their needs and what they need because this was a good opportunity for me to kind of watch them. And as a mother, you kind of know your kids. And so I was looking for certain, I mean, I'm no therapist. I'm no grief counselor. (laughs) This was all just by doing what I thought you know, I should do. I mean, this is all by the seat of my pants. There's no rhyme or reason. And kind of mother's but, mother's instinct. Yeah, my mother's instinct. So I focused on them, and I sort of said, I'm not really going to deal with myself right now. I'm just going to deal with what they need. And then when they go back to school, then I'll have the day free. I can grieve. I can, I can sort of then indulge myself, not really indulge myself, but let myself grieve the way I need to. And so I, that, that's what made sense to me, putting it on hold, but everyone has to grieve in their own way and do the things that makes them feel better, as long as they're not self-destructive things. Yes. And that is something that happens because there's this huge hole and there's this temptation to fill it. And so I always said, I'm, I'm just too chicken to drink and, you know, wake up and not feel well. But I know people that this that's a temptation or you just have that gaping hole. So how do you fill it? And so to make sure it's as healthy as possible. For me, I did find a good therapist who was very helpful. And, and I, I've heard people say that didn't work for them. But I, for me, where I was in my life, it worked for me. So I agree. Healthy, healthy ways Exactly. And whatever works for you, like you, you know, some people are very comfortable sharing. And so, um, you know, going to a therapist or talking to a friend or to clergy or whoever, you know, whomever you feel comfortable speaking with. But some people like I am tend to be a little more um, introverted in a sense. I have to like sit and think myself and make sense of it myself first before I can talk to anyone else, because I don't really know what I'm feeling until I make sense of it myself first. So I didn't go that route, the therapy route, only because I don't feel comfortable sharing, you know, at that raw moment. So that, you know, I'm just pointing out, like, that worked for you, but not going to someone was okay, worked for me. You know, you have to do what works for for you. I mean, you kind of have to know yourself. Like, I, I know I'm not a, a a huge sharer, and so I didn't feel comfortable with that. But if you're a more open person, and you have to do what works for you and what makes sense to you and fits your personality, too. That was my conversation with my sister-in-law, Larissa. 
I was fortunate to see Larissa and her daughters over Christmas this year. Throughout our interview, Larissa honestly shared her continued worry that she did all she could as a mother. From my perspective, her daughters are successful, smart, and kind. A beautiful combination of both of their parents. I'm Patty G, and you've been listening to This Is Gonna Hurt, Widows Mentoring Widows. Join me in two weeks when I'll talk to another sister-in-law, Stacy. Stacy is a Christian woman whose faith guided her through her journey as a widow while being a single mother of three. When you faced cancer or that loss, you aren't the same person you were before. And frankly, as I walk through it, I'm glad I'm not that person I was before. You can subscribe to This Is Gonna Hurt on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And you can send feedback, ask questions, or share your own story by emailing thisisgonnahurt1 at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.